from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. This is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. On today's Writer's Talk, we speak with NPR's Michelle Norris about writing the story of her family. And we talk to Central Ohio writer Scott Rankin about deadlines and professional writing. That's all coming up next on Writer's Talk. Michelle Norris has been interviewing hundreds of world leaders, newsmakers, and everyday citizens for NPR's All Things Considered for almost a decade. Her first book is Grace of Silence, the story of her parents. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Michelle Norris. Tell me about how you approached writing this book and how it was different from writing for the radio. One of the things that I that I did is, is to try to, I guess, take away the intimidation factor. This is my first book. Mm-hmm. And I would look at that that blank that blank page on the computer and there were moments where I was terrified how am I going to fill it up and I realized that if I wanted to tell the story that it had to be in my voice and I, I used a, a little trick I would sometimes actually most of the time when I sat down to write would not write immediately in word I would open up an email template an email like I was going to send an email to someone family member my best friend or something like that and I would actually write in email because when I write emails to someone, I'm writing in my own voice. That's when I have the sort of little asides or observations. or um, It just it felt much more natural to me. And, uh, and then I would move it into an actual document and, you know, and deal with punctuation and, right. uh, and things like that. But that's initially how I tried to break the dam. So who were you originally sending your email to? It depended on where I was in the book. Okay. It really depended. Some days I was writing to my mother. Some days I was writing to my husband, Broderick Johnson. Some days I was writing to my best friend, Gwen Eiffel. Um, and some days I was writing to my father, who died in 1988. But I felt I had to channel him in some way and think about how I would write an email to him, which is you know, a little bit unusual because he left this earth before email became something that we used right. as a natural form of communication. But it was all a device. It was all, you know, the little mental tricks that you play <laughs> as you're trying to figure out how to scale the mountain. And it was, it was, it may sound silly, but it worked for me. Okay. It helped me get into that groove so I could actually round the corner from writing copy um, for the radio, writing for the ear, to actually writing for the eye. And, uh, and and writing for a, a narrative that would go over sort of hills and, and valleys to tell a full story. Right. And as you're doing this, you're telling the story of your family and, and your parents. And I'm curious about how that impacted the way that you wrote it. Um, were there parts where you had to step back and say, I don't want to talk about this now, or I don't want to go into this, because some of it seems to me um, like it, it was likely to be painful for you to encounter. There's a part where you talk about your father being shot. Um, and uh, how did that impact your writing of the story? I I, I set that, that bit aside, the writing about the actual shooting. It was very hard to do, and my editor, I have a wonderful editor on this project, Errol McDonald, with Pantheon Books, um, and he sensed that I was having a difficult time. And he said, you know, at some point, Michelle, you're going to have to, you're just going to have to write this. You're just going to have to sit down and write it. And and one of the things that he did is he said, think about, you know, one of the more difficult days that you've had, one of your more difficult memories, and and write about that. And just get used to writing through pain. Just sit down and do it. And it reminded me of the, <laughs> I 
frankly. Doug, it reminded me of the advice I used to get from the nuns when I was growing up. That every day you must do something that absolutely terrifies you every <laughs> single day. Is this the voice you've worked up for the voice of the nuns? <laughs> and you know, and that's what it reminded me of. Do something that you you know, that just makes you shake in your knees. And it was a good exercise for me because it helped. It did help me right through pain. But the process of memory is a memory is like a muscle. You know, the more that you flex it, the, the stronger it gets. And when I went through that period, where I was actually trying to think of very painful memories and, and write through them. Strange things started to, to happen to me because I would start. I would really start to remember things that as that I think the mind locks away, or or at least you know sets on a shelf. So you're not trudging through life with, you know, with all this pain uh, in your bones. And what wound up being the first chapter of the book was something that, um, that kept washing over me, you know, as I was trying to figure out how I was going to write about the shooting. Uh, and one day I was driving, and it and I had to pull off over, over the side of the road because it was the memories were just that vivid. It was that it was like I was back in 1988, in the summer of 1988, right before I lost my father. Uh, and and so this was this was this was a a special kind of vertigo, you know, to go through a process like this and write about my family, write about myself as a journalist, write about a story that I was you know where I was one of the characters. I'm not used to doing that. I'm not, and I didn't have a, you know, I didn't have a guidebook that I could easily turn to. But I'm lucky that I had a, a wonderful editor, and I was I was surrounded by people in my immediate family and in my circle of friends who all who often who also um, tend who also have written books of their own and 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 write you know for a living. I have several friends who are either journalists or writers. So I had a nice little cocoon um, to, to help me do this. And, and in the end, when I decided to write, you know, when I, I, know when I decided when I had to write the scene of, um, of my father's shooting, it wound up not being the most painful part of the writing process. And, you know, and it, it, it wound up being a difficult door to open and a difficult passage to write, but it by far was not the most difficult. Okay. Now, you've talked about this being your first book, and you said that it was the cocoon that you were in. How has that cocoon been affected by being interviewed now? Um, the You're usually the interviewer. The tables are turned, and you're having to talk to people about this. Does that change the way you think about writing uh, for your job later on? <laughs> you, know? You, know, you know, what it changed, when I always think about when I'm doing book interviews, particularly for people who have done stories, that are um, that are painful. I remember I talked to a writer, Leslie Morgan Steiner. She wrote a book called Crazy Love about her years in li living in a domestic, um, in a relationship uh, filled with domestic violence. It was a very difficult book for her to write, very difficult book for her to report, and difficult for her to then travel around the country and talk about it over and over and over again. And um, and that's where I find myself. You know, I, I this was hard for me to go through it, and it's hard for me to talk about it now. I. I, I I, I've said this before. I will never get used to saying my father was shot. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and saying it over and over again doesn't make it easier. It's not like one of those exercises. I mean, the nun, the advice that the nuns had is is not. I, I haven't quite figured out how it can serve me in this one. That that one is just um, difficult, and it's difficult every time I talk about it. But I'm I'm willing to do it because I think that there are important lessons to be drawn from my father's story, 
and I hope that uh, and people, I hope people read this book, and I hope that after they read this book, they understand how important it is to try to capture your history, um, and to to talk to your family members, even if they have difficult stories to tell. Right. And uh, the last thing I wanted to say is I really wanted to compliment you on the part of the story where you're talking about your father at, at, in the beginning. I think it's the first chapter where he's you're traveling back to uh, – you're traveling with him rather and he's getting on a plane. And I, I think that section is a really uh, – my feeling is that that was a, a difficult part to write, but I thought it was really done well. Thank you. And, Thank um, you. It and it's good. actually ex- excerpted on our, on our website if, if um, people want to – if it, you haven't had the book and you want to take a look at it, it's at michelle-norris.com, and people okay. can actually get a peek at what we're talking about. And the book is The Grace of Silence with um, Michelle Norris, and I thank you very much for talking to us today on Writer's Talk. Doug, thank you. Scott Rankin has been a professional writer in media communications for 35 years. He has worked in multiple genres, including news releases, newspaper articles, brochures, proposals, ads, speeches, and videos. He's been a writer, producer, director, teleproduction manager, state public affairs manager, and a local nighttime news producer, winning an ITVA Golden Reel and two Addy Awards along the way. He also scripted the weekly Ohio Lottery Cash Explosion TV game show, and he'll let us know how writing can make cash explode. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you, Doug. Well, let's start off uh, at the beginning. How did you get started as a professional writer? Were you really into commercial writing as a kid? Did you just love uh, reading uh, ads in newspapers? How does that get started? You know, I've really got to go back to Mrs. Galloway's ninth grade English class. And I mean, like every other kid, I was suffering through English classes. And I was doing okay, you know, but uh, you're conjugating verbs, you're remembering lists of helper words, be, am, are, is, was, were, been, have, has, had, do, is, done, you know, all those things. Very nice. You know, and, but it was all just, you know, assignments and a chore. And, and it wasn't until ninth grade when Mrs. Galloway had us start doing some creative writing and she had us... Uh, starting with uh, short stories. So I had developed a, a little character named Aloysius and uh, found that from week to week I could have Aloysius do different things and have all these adventures. And uh, all of a sudden writing was fun and it wasn't a chore anymore. And that just, the light went off. Um, so that was, that was kind of the start. Uh, I think the, the professional aspect of it came... Uh, in college and afterward with uh, uh, broadcast work. I was a radio TV major, so uh, news, news writing, and that kind of thing was, uh, was a place to get that kind of thing started. Okay. What did you start off with at news and news writing? Uh, it's a, it was a, probably an interestingly different landscape. Uh, yeah, it, it, uh, in, in, uh, coming out of school, I started in uh, some uh, part-time and some small-town radio stations in Marion and Mansfield and, and Ashland. And uh, so you'd fill in for the news director for a week, and then you'd fill in for the sports director for a week, and then you'd fill in for the guy doing the farm show for a week. And all of those things had writing requirements and, uh, uh, and deadlines. And so that was great uh, discipline for learning how to write fast. Uh, mm-hmm to get done on time and, uh, and, and be interesting. 
How did you make the farm report interesting? Just uh, you just brought up the number of cows sold that week, or what was your? Um, I grew up in the country, but I didn't listen to the farm report. Well, I, for example, I'd never heard about such a thing as spaghetti squash, you know, until I was you know doing a, a farm report and talking to a gardener who was coming in with recipes for spaghetti squash. So that you know that's the kind of thing you find out when you're in that kind of a. a learning and professional environment. Okay. So you, we've talked about a bunch of different genres at the beginning that you write. Tell me how you approach them differently. If you're going to write a proposal versus an ad, is there a different way that you do the setup to come to it? Yeah, that's, honestly, that's got to be the most fun part of what I've been doing throughout my career. Um, because when you're writing for multiple medium media, every, every genre has its own particular voice and tone. Um, and so what that means is, as, as a writer, you've got to have the ability to write in voices other than your own natural writing style. Uh, in fact, I write in enough types of things, I'm not even sure I have my own original <laughs> natural writing style. But, um, you know, for example, um, there are times when I need to write journalistically. Uh, you know, an example of that would be uh, there are little... Uh, stories in the Columbus Dispatch that uh, we do at, at Mills James. They're actually ads, but they run in a section called the Columbus Marketplace, uh, and they're written in the classic uh, inverted pyramid journalistic style with a headline, a photo, a cut line, and, and 300 words of text. Um, so that's a very repertorial style of, of writing. Um, uh, another would be um, uh, writing promotionally. And that's a whole other, a whole other genre of things. So those might include things like uh, like ads that might appear in Business First or uh, trade publications. Uh, they might be brochures. Uh, it was a greeting card, you know. So I've actually had my own hallmark moment, you know, promotional brochures. Uh, we had done a a, a new documentary uh, last year um, called The Cartoonist. Uh, it's a documentary on the life and times of Jeff Smith, uh, the the uh, artist behind the the Bone series. So it was a, a media kit that went out to. Uh, uh, the, uh, the the uh, trade press and popular press and so and, for something you know, like that, you know. do you you just pick up what they've already written on and or do you follow Jeff Smith around? How did you create something like this, a promotional piece about Jeff Smith? Well, in this particular case, the uh, I mean, much of the research work about Jeff was already part of the uh, part of the documentary, mm-hmm. but as a case of uh, putting together a, a media kit that would be used at the uh, premiere of the documentary at the Wexner Center mm-hmm. uh, that tells the background of, of Jeff and the, uh, the Bone series. Uh, for those who weren't familiar with that, uh, about the making of the documentary and who all was interviewed for it and some of the behind-the-scenes kinds of things and where it's going to be available and how and uh, an interview with the director and you know, all of those types of things that end up making maybe a, a 30-page kit that would be uh, distributed to the you know, news media and anybody would be interested in the uh, creative aspects of it. How long do you have to put together a 30-page media kit uh, on something like that? What's the standard time? You get a week, a day, an hour? What What do you get? Well, you know, in, in this particular case, this was about a project that we had produced so we could control the process a little more. So in the case of this, it might be in the order of a couple weeks. Uh, it might be something driven by a client deadline, which might be a day, 
might be an hour, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, uh, the, the whole deadline aspect of of this part of the business is a is an interesting thing that we can get into you know later here. It seems to me yeah. like it's that you're being you're paid by the project, not by the hour. So the deadline um, probably doesn't enter into the the fees as much as I might imagine. No, not as much as you think it would. No, yeah. no. Okay. But that's you know, but the whole promotional piece of it is just uh, another flavor of writing, and and there are others. Okay. Uh, persuasive writing would okay. be one of those, uh, and that might take the form of proposals. For projects that we might be proposing to do, and uh, so you know, these might be 30 pages, 100 pages, uh, lots of graphics, uh, storytelling, descriptions, background, strategy about how a project might go together. So, do you, when you approach something like mm -hmm. this as a writer, uh, you're incorporating, like you said, all these graphics. Do you've got somebody that helps you with the graphics, or do you have to develop that sort of graphical eye? that goes with your text? Well, uh, in, in working in a place like Knowles James, there's no shortage of great designers uh, at hand to be able to give something a good look. Uh, sometimes that's not possible because of deadlines. Mm -hmm. um, so we often work with uh, graphical templates, uh, and um, I have enough of an eye to be able to, to stay within a template and give it something of a look mm -hmm. uh, that isn't uh, too obnoxious. And if, it's, uh, if it needs something uh, above and beyond that, then we'll pull a, a designer in. So sometimes it'll be a custom look. Sometimes it'll be something that just uh, falls within a Mills James branded look and feel okay. using more of a template approach. But it's, uh, it's still a lot of writing that's got to happen within that templatized shell. Okay. I'm curious with the stuff that you do, if you, uh, and you don't, Obviously, I'm not looking for names here, but you occasionally must come upon something you think, oh, this client is nuts. You know, we can't uh, do this or that. How do you, as a writer, handle that and create something that, that still works for you and for the, the person that you're working with? How is it that you negotiate that so that you feel good at the end of the day? Well, ultimately, we think of ourselves as problem solvers. So uh, while at first blush, a client might look like, uh, there's a request that's that's unreasonable, but underneath that, uh, there needs to be a lot of good problem solving that's got to happen uh, to address those those kinds of situations. It might be uh, a, a short budget, uh, no time to work on it. Uh, you know, there could be any number of things, but it's it ultimately it's all just about good problem solving. Okay. Walk me through your day as a professional writer. What happens when you come in in the morning and you say, "Okay, I'm just going to start on the project I had yesterday"? Uh, do you have a, a a really set schedule, or is it constantly changing? Well, and that's part of the the beauty of of writing as a profession, and and that is that I can work from anywhere. Um, so I may be in my office at, uh, in the building. I may be working out of uh, my office at home. Uh, as long as the Internet connection holds up, uh, we're good to go. Uh, I might be working sitting on the rocks at uh, Marblehead Lighthouse at Lake Erie. Um, I might be on the Lido deck of a cruise ship. You're making this sound better and better uh, it does. as a it lifestyle. Sound, it sounds really. very romantic, you know, right, yeah. and it can, you know, from a, from a lifestyle freedom point of view, it can be very freeing. Uh, the evil downside of that is the whole deadline aspect of anything that is uh, that involves uh, business writing, um, because um, uh, well, for example, I worked all weekend on something that was due yesterday morning. Uh, you know, there might be a proposal that would be an all-nighter or two, 
to meet a, a very difficult uh, deadline. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a there is a price to be paid for that, and. Uh, you know, Artie Isaac was on the show uh, a few months ago, and of course, Artie is one of the, the great creative minds of Central Ohio. And I think he made the point in, in his uh, in his presentation that, uh, that that deadlines can be very restrictive and inhibit the creative process. Uh, I've found uh, in my own background, it's just the opposite. Uh, deadlines are kind of like miracle grow that just make it sprout. Or maybe another way to look at it is deadlines are the vice that squeeze out those ideas drop by drop by drop. Wow, that, is, that, that may be the, the, the grossest metaphor that anybody has used on the show. That's not the, I'll, I'll tell that to students next time. Look at this deadline as the vice that squeezes out your good ideas. So you did a show called, you wrote the script for a show called Cash Explosion. Mm-hmm. It's still on. You wrote it uh, previously. How do you write the script for a show that's, that I would have taken as a naive viewer as almost extemporaneous, that, they, that the hosts were saying things that were not scripted, but they're apparently they're scripted? And that's the hallmark of, of a good writer for a show like that. Uh, uh, I worked on the Cash Explosion show the first year that it came into Columbus and was produced from, uh, from Mill Shame Studios here. So that's been a number of years ago. And, uh, but that was my first uh, experience at, at writing for uh, episodic television week after week um, and uh, in, a, in a game show extemporaneous kind of format. And, uh, and you very much uh, want the show to, to have the appearance of just kind of being done on the fly. And in reality, much of it is, because uh, much of the, the drama of Cash Explosion comes from the characters on the show itself. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun when you're watching game shows, you look at a show like uh, Price is Right, and the uh, contestants are just getting all lathered up for the opportunity to, uh, uh, to, to bid on uh, a $5,000 set of bedroom furniture. You know, national television now. You know, and you take a show like Cash Explosion, which in reality it's... Uh, it's the only weekly lottery game show that's on in the country. Um, so that makes it kind of unique. And uh, the, the weekly cash payouts of the show are huge. So it uh, kind of has this reputation of being the winningest show on television. Uh, so someone can buy a, a dollar cash explosion ticket, scratch it off, and if the right stuff pops up on the ticket, you're on, you're on a live TV game show with the ability to walk off with hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. And that's not a $5,000 bedroom set. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of drama that comes out of that kind of environment with right. real people, bakers, uh, bait salesmen, uh, emergency room nurses that are, you know, are there on the show uh, participating in, the, in all the, the drama and the action. One of my favorite questions is, what's your favorite um, genre to write and why? What do you really enjoy? You get the assignment, you say, I'm looking forward to this. I think... Um, the favorite piece of it is writing for radio or for video and for television because you've got two columns to think about. You've got the whole visual channel of, of thinking about what's the concept, what are the what are the uh, locations, you know, what are the people that are being interviewed, are the stories to be told, the animations, the motion graphics, all of the things that are going to be happening on the screen, and then tying it all together with a cohesive narrative that we think of as the more pure form of, of writing, because that's where the text is. But being able to weave the two together and having to think of both at the same time, uh, like having to walk and chew gum at the same time as you're writing and creating, uh, that's, a, that's a stimulating place, uh, place to be. I think the most challenging uh, form of writing is the journalistic kind of work that would express itself in a, you know, a, a dispatch story, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 300 words. That's it. 
You know, so in, in, when I, if I'm writing something like that, I probably write long. I end up with a 500-word story and then ending up peeling it back a word at a time mm-hmm. through these successive little rewrites. It's, oh, I gained a word. Oh, there's another one. You know, and you, you get it down to 300 words, each one carefully chosen for a reason to be there. You know, so there's, you know, every word's been agonized over. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's, and, and, which is fun in its own way. I once got under a word count by doing a lot of hyphenating. Is that a fair thing to do? Yeah, <laughs> that works. You know, you can hyphenate. And, of course, and then, then the other shortcut is just contractions. So it is becomes it's. Oh, Boom, right. there's a word, you know. Okay. So you play those games throughout. You hyphenate. And, and, uh, and that's usually the opposite of what students <laughs> in school are doing, which is, you know, pulling things apart to get to the, the, the word limit. So what's your favorite genre to read when you're not writing something like this? What do you go home and say, I, you know, I write for a living. I want to read X. Well, I started out my career in, in broadcast news, some small town radio. And then uh, I was working at uh, Channel 4 here in town uh, as a, a news producer for both the 6 o'clock and the 11 o'clock. And so and once, once you're working in the news business, I think it causes chromosome damage because what, it, what ends up happening is you become a news junkie and uh, it never quite leaves you. So for me, uh, newspapers, weekly news magazines, time, you know, nonfiction current event stuff is, is really my zone. Is that... You said it becomes an addiction, chromosomal damage. <laughs> Does that carry over to you watching things like a lot of CNN, a lot of uh, the news channels that are 24-hour news cycles? Or are you still attracted to the print? Everything you mentioned, I mean, obviously I, I set you up to do print, but... Um, does that also attract you, the news shows that are the 24-hour news cycle? Absolutely, uh, and, and primarily local news. I mean, that's, I, I spend a lot of time with, with uh, the local news channels, uh, and working uh, in a, a home office environment gives me the, the, the freedom to in, uh, engage that kind of guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, really yeah. good that they, I'll, I'll send them a message <laughs> calling them guilty pleasures. That's yeah. a nice. Thing to get. <laughs> well, you know, back in you know in newsroom days, you know, they all monitor each other. So there'd be four, six, ten, twenty-eight, all up on monitors at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. and so the idea of watching one TV at a time at home is it's like that doesn't seem right. Oh, it, it does seem <laughs> limiting. Have you been able to make that pitch to anybody that lives yeah, in your not, household? Yeah, but nobody's buying Multiple. it. Yet. Nobody's yeah. buying it. Okay. <laughs> You've got a bachelor's degree in radio and television from Ashland University, a master's of arts in communications with an emphasis on public relations from Ohio University. Ohio State. Ohio State University. Ugh. Oh, yep. that's yeah, damaging. That, yeah, yeah. 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 I, uh, they're yeah. both wonderful schools. The logo's on the screen. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what was the most useful part of getting those degrees? What was the thing that really has stayed with you that you think this is what I really needed to know in order to be successful? I think as far as the the uh, undergraduate degree, uh, the ability to take writing and then fuse it with a medium so that you're not just being a, a, a writer in a, a generic sense. You're a writer in broadcast media. Uh, so you're coming out with the hands-on kind of background through in-class work and internships and all those usual college experiences that really set you up to be employable from the beginning. So uh, that, for the undergraduate piece, that, that, that was, that's the angle there. For, the, for, for graduate school um, uh, uh, at Ohio State, the Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. University. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I think... Uh, the, 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 the coursework, certainly. I got a chance to take some PR courses from uh, Walt Seifert, who's a, a legend in PR circles and in, in this area, and uh, Dr. Joe Foley in the communications department. Uh, but the thing that, that really 
was the best experience. I'm going to reach down and grab something here in a second. Was the was the thesis? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at first I, I kind of winced at the the thesis track. Oh my gosh, I have to write one of those. But uh, and it, it took two years to turn that bad boy out. But what what came out of that was the discipline of good research, which is something I've used every day since then, uh, of having to adhere to a very rigid format in terms of its style, um, and with the consequences of knowing that this work is going to be judged by uh, a jury of academic peers, um, and a degree will be awarded or not based on whether this thing passes that test. So in, 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 uh, in hindsight, after all these years, uh, nothing I've written since has been as hard as that was. So um, you know, that was a, a fabulous learning experience. <laughs> what, what would you recommend for students contemplating degrees like the ones you have? Um, are they still really valuable? Is there something else that's on the landscape that you're seeing people come out with now that you think, okay, this is a really good degree? It's sort of the landscape has sort of changed. I mean, there's a lot of changes in journalism, for example. And uh, where, where do you see that headed for people in your field? Well, one of the uh, emerging majors, and there's one right here at this institution, and that's digital media. Um, and uh, which embraces so much of what's happening now with uh, online communications in its many forms and social media and and other emerging things. Um, My fear about that type of a major is the same type of thing that you could say about a radio TV major decades ago. It kind of dates itself and may not wear well over time. Mm -hmm. It's very now. The advice I would give would be to, to attach writing to something that's got some strategy behind it. It's not driven by a media format like radio, TV, online, anything, but it's driven more by public relations. For more from my guest, Michelle Norris, including links to her book, and Scott Rankin, visit www.writerstalk.org. Writers Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing and the Ohio Channel, where you can see videos of our author interviews at www.ohiochannel.org. Join us next time for Waylon Jenny's songwriter, Nikki Menta, who will be in town October 10th with six-string concerts, and Bill Russell, lyricist for the Ohio premiere of the Catco musical, The Last Smoker in America. Until then, this is Doug Danger from The Ohio State University saying, keep writing.